Hello and welcome to another Curzon Film Podcast. I'm Jake Cunningham and this week we're talking about a film that's had a lot of coverage on film Twitter. In fact, I was reading a scaldingly hot take on it this very morning. The tweet went on and on, linking many tweets together in fact. Sadly, it has been deleted now, but it has been burnt in my mind to reside forever like a phantom thread. Hello and welcome to a new guest, Josh Slater-Williams. Hello, that was, that was very bad. Thank you. I appreciate that. And regular Irena Wismechi. Hello. I How are you doing? Yeah, I was better before that. Junk. I thought, yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, not worth it. Not worth. No, I'm only hanging on by Fred. Hey, that, that's good. Oh, this is why I don't invite new guests on because they come <laughs> in and they, then they kind of try and up my really good jokes. They're the voice of truth. Yeah. Uh, so we will be talking about Phantom Thread, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's new film, all about the uh, the kind of glitz and glamour of haute couture making during the 1950s starring Daniel Day-Lewis but that's that's not the only thing we've been watching this week Josh what have you been catching up with partially in preparation for this I've been catching up with some of uh, Mr Anderson's earlier films which I've not seen for quite some time um, including uh, Magnolia which I believe you discussed on a previous episode so I won't get to, in too much into that but I will say as much as I really like Phantom Fred and recent PTA, I do sort of miss what I call emo PTA <laughs> a little bit um, with Magnolia. Um, that's not quite as present in Boogie Nights, which I've also seen for the first time in about a decade recently, um, but that's still a pretty astounding piece of filmmaking. But uh, it's also interesting to observe just how, how different a filmmaker he is mm. in comparison to yeah, what he was as this kind of like a wonderkind, I guess, of 90s American indie cinema. Yeah, well, those those two films... Boogie Nights and um, Magnolia feel, almost feel like a teenager just being allowed mm. out and given free reign yeah. to do whatever he wants and it feels like those films represent what the inside of his bedroom would look like. <laughs> I mean even if it's a case that he's kind of put away that stage of his career for reasons obviously like certain collaborators not being with us anymore sadly but also, but seeing Magnolia and Boogie Nights again made me really miss um, Mellor Walters being in stuff. And uh, Philip Baker Hall's kind of presence in PTA's filmography. I would love if he did work with some of these actors again, but I guess guess we'll see. Mm. I'd love for William H. Macy to come back. Yes, definitely. Always been one of my favourite um, sort of character actors, but really should be a leading actor. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think he, they've just finished up. They've finished Shameless in America mm. now, haven't they? I believe so. I yeah. think I heard that. So potentially this is the time. It's the time. It? Yeah. Well, I've heard um, PTA talking that he he may actually come back to the present day. Ooh. And uh, so perhaps in, in the next film we can see William H. Macy in the present day doing a Paul Thomas Anderson film. Wouldn't that be a treat? Uh, Rena? Uh, I've been watching The Crown season two to my endless shame and embarrassment <laughs> as a, a committed non-royalist. But as a recent citizen, I felt that I needed to kind of uh, up my game and find out all about the royal family. And actually, surprisingly, there's quite an overlap in the world of uh, The Crown, both season one and season two with Phantom Thread. So it was really quite a nice uh, way to get into this film, having just watched, uh, you know, what's going on with Princess Margaret and catching up with her latest dresses for her appearances in society and uh, is this the season that has John Lithgow in uh, the first season has John Lithgow oh, in right, it, and okay. then he's kind of in a few episodes at the beginning but then it moves on uh, into the 60s okay so there's All no right. more Churchill plenty of Churchill elsewhere yeah, in cinema yeah because there is this is our this is the third Churchill that we've had on screen in the last 12 months yeah 
Yeah. Lots of Churchill. Can't have enough of him. I did a nice double bill this week, which when I tell you what it is, I'm sure knowing you two, uh, we could end up discussing the whole podcast on it. Um, so we must reserve our conversation. But it was a lovely double bill, two nights in a row, things to come in Eden. Oh, lovely. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So I the, feel like I have to hold myself back. Yeah, no, that's, that's <laughs> yeah. what I was worried about. Special episode of the podcast upcoming. <laughs> yeah. If you have not seen Mia Hansen Loves Films, well, go and watch all of them. But the that Especially double, Eden. Especially Eden, which it is wonderful. And just as a as a playlist of music to constantly go back to every time you listen to it for about a week, it's absolutely brilliant. Um, and Things to Come starring Isabel Huppert as this uh, philosophy teacher caught in this later life crisis and just dealing with it in such a pragmatic and wonderful way. Uh, I sent it to my dad, who was a philosophy teacher, and he just he replied saying, God, it was awful. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, some of these conversations that she has to deal with, I, I don't think I could. But two, two brilliant films that I will obviously be revisiting many, many times. But those are not the films that we're here to talk about today. We're talking about Phantom Thread, set in the glamour of 1950s post-war London. Reynolds Woodcock, played by Daniel Day-Lewis, and his sister Cyril are at the centre of British fashion. And all is well in the house of Woodcock, until our beloved Reynolds stumbles upon the waitress Alma, who is welcomed into his home, into his fashion house, and... Hilarity ensues. <laughs> also into his heart, you forgot to say. Yes, he is welcome very much into her heart. She is. She, oh, he is. Both well, are. I think I think hearts. They are, both are. Yeah, they very much share share each other's hearts. Uh, and this is Daniel Day Lewis's final film, supposedly. So, Rena, you were tweeting the other day after you had watched this film that you didn't know what to expect going in, and what you got on the way out was also not what you expected, but it was great. Totally. I um, From the trailer, I had a sense of this film that was completely different from what we actually got. Um, I was prepared for a place that the trailer doesn't actually go into, which is a full-blown Hitchcockian psychodrama about obsession and uh, murder at some point and terrible things befalling to women in particular. Uh, and I was kind of dreading it, even though I'm a massive PTA fan. And the film really didn't go there the full way it sort of always has ways in which it could and then doesn't quite um and the film that we got in the end was surprisingly warm very funny and quite surprising just i think the word is really surprising i i can't recall a film that i've seen recently that I was excited about in this way and never quite know where it was going to take me. Yeah, uh, I so I tried to avoid as much as I could on this. Uh, I had seen the trailer, and such is the bane of having to work in cinemas. <laughs> you do see a lot of them. But what's interesting is Paul Thomas Anderson takes control of his trailers. So the trailer that we've seen is the film that he wants us to think we're going to watch. Uh, Josh, did you have the same experience? Uh, somewhat. I mean, I... When some of the early reviews came out, I was obviously hearing the kind of Hitchcock comparisons. But prior to that, the sort of impression I got from the trailer was, uh, I think I described it to myself as um, Mike Lee's The Red Shoes. It sort of looked like Ooh. to me, in a, in a way, kind of a Mike Lee in more Mr. Turner, topsy-turvy mm. mode, rather than like Secrets and Lies. That sort of reminded me a little bit of that. And this is kind of um relationship between arguable muse and not-so-nice creative force I suppose yeah. it's not quite the film I got although the thing I found very interesting is that and I don't think it can be attributed solely to him shooting on film but it, it looks so much like 
British period films made in the 80s. I'm not sure. It's almost like he went back in time in a way. It, it, obviously, it's not set in the same period, but like parts of it in look rise remind me of things like Chariots of Fire and stuff like that. Well, I Maybe think in, in his formative years, those are the British films that he would have been watching. Yeah. It's funny because I didn't get a vibe of um, 80s at all. I got yeah. a vibe of 50s, which is oh, very yeah, much a time period of the of the story. There's sure. something in his framing that's not very 80s. You're kind of always watching yeah. things, being half obstructed by stuff. There's always a doorway in the way. There's always a little bit of a window or a curtain. There's some egregious wallpaper in this film, <laughs> which is utterly fascinating. I, I love William Morris wallpaper, and there's a load of that in the film. Even the chair that Alma is sitting on at the beginning is a William Morris chair, uh, both the, the design and the um, the fabric on it. So there's a lot of attention to that detail, which I think is where we see the period drama mm. influence. But the, the filmmaker that I was reminded of, who is one of PTA's big influences, is Max Ophuls, mm. who is a um, German-born filmmaker who went to Hollywood in the 30s. Uh, and then came back to Europe and made most of his greatest films in France in the 50s. And uh, PTA was influenced by particularly his use of tracking shots, but also here in the mise-en-scene, everything is so opulent and luscious and at the same time really minimalistic, Mm. which I found absolutely extraordinary. I just couldn't get over how beautiful this film looked and how of its era and of our era at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Let's... let's uh, get into where the the plot of this film starts. Vicky Creeps as Alma is introduced in a in a wonderful breakfast scene. I think around Whitby was where this was filmed, and Daniel Day Lewis's uh, Reynolds orders quite a stupendous breakfast, which I I tried to recall, which I think is rarebit with a slightly runny egg, bacon scones with cream, and specifically not strawberry jam. Raspberry. Raspberry, and then. Lapsang tea, and finally sausages. That is that is a breakfast after my own. Heart. <laughs> I tried to write it all down. I get I just gave up and crossed out. <laughs> I got well, and some sausages. Yeah, you'd never be his favorite girlfriend. N- no, let's no. face it. The fact that yeah, cause, and why he, must you remind me of this? All uh, <laughs> I am so sorry. And uh, so he and he keeps the little tab of her order, and she she remembers all of that and brings it to him. And I think yeah, you would fall in love with him uh, if you if he places that order and you can remember it straight away. There's also something just so delightful about Daniel Day-Lewis smiling and just being a temporarily happy person. Mm. You sort of remember his earliest roles and uh, some there was some whiff of Newland Archer, his character in The Age of Innocence, who is not a happy man, but is capable of happiness and would be capable. And uh, there was just something so charming about him in that scene. I was really disarmed. But equally, she comes into his life in this kind of, you know, stumbly, a bit awkward way. And she sort of blushes the moment he smiles at her. And you know there's going to be a love story there. Yeah. Yeah. Like sort of awkward meet cute from a rom-com. Yeah. In a way, at at first. One note I made is that... I'm not sure how you would kind of define this genre-wise, other than drama, I suppose, but I would maybe call it a, like a gothic romantic comedy. Definitely. Yeah. There's a that breakfast uh, sort of continues in this really charming way, which he brings him the breakfast and then gives him a note back when he asks for her number. Basically, he <laughs> says, "Hey, can I take you for dinner?" And she gives him a note, and the note says, "To the hungry boy," mm. which to me is the absolute key of the entire film. What is he hungry for? And is he a boy or is he a man? Yeah. That chimes in with 
his issue runs throughout the film in his pursuit of his mother and for this uh, this care that he's constantly looking for, whether it's from his sister Cyril, who we will get on to, who is a wonderful creation, uh, and Alma, who's this newly introduced character who will play some motherly caring role for him. So we meet Alma and she becomes amused quite instantly. He takes her back to her country home and decides that he'd like to make a dress for her and takes her up this, this kind of quite ghostly room at the top of the house filled with mannequins and just starts pinning fabric to her. And there's a point where I think we're told how to experience the film when Daniel Day-Lewis is just holding up these various colours of fabric to her and pins one up and says, no, it's far too serious. And I think that's him saying, "This is, you can have fun with this, just because it is Daniel Day-Lewis and because it's Paul Thomas Anderson. This You don't need to be thinking of this film as uh, to be read completely seriously all the time. You are allowed to enjoy this. Did that c- come as a surprise? I expected some comedic moments because they kind of tend to be in even as more serious films like... Magnolia, for example. Uh, but I think the degree to which I was laughing out at, actually laughing out loud was somewhat surprising. I mean, some of that might be spoilery to say why I was laughing, cause, mm. but it's based on like Day Lewis's expressions or just laughter at the sheer uh, strangeness. This kind of eventually toxic relationship goes down. Mm. It's uh, like, again not knowing what this was going to be at all. That's it was pretty surprising, I suppose. Well, maybe I'm a bad person because I actually laughed a lot during There Will Be Blood. There are moments there of extreme high comedy in the middle of this very ponderous, very serious allegory about political power and religious power and capitalism. So I I did expect that there would be times when, you know, somehow PTA was going to put a stamp on this, this film that I'd seen trailered mm. and expected to be a Hitchcock drama. And I was kind of thinking this cannot possibly be what he's doing. It, it's it's interesting. What I was talking about Max Oldfield's earlier um, is also that I got a whiff of um, Todd Haynes. I was I kept mm, thinking I this could be that. a Todd yeah, Haynes yeah. film. If only it weren't so mad. <laughs> it's It's got that, that PTA level madness in the dialogue and also in the places where the relationship is eventually taken, uh, which is a way of sending itself up. And that's fantastic. And it really, to me, does connect to this idea of what it's trying to do with this central male character and sending him up and sending up the idea of toxic masculinity. How do you deal with this? Um, I don't particularly like the idea of any woman being a muse. I think the muse sits there and is admired and loved. And that's not what Alma does. Um, in this initial scene where it's kind of very seductive what he's doing to her is he asks her to undress and she's practically you know as naked as you could be in the 50s without being butt naked uh and he's taking her measurements and suddenly he's calling up his sister to take up her measurements Mm. that is such a bizarre thing to do and i i did not expect that moment of seduction to turn into this you know, message, which is his way of seducing her is to make things for her. Uh, However, she responds to this in a way that is fascinating. He um, sees her in a way that she doesn't see herself, but eventually comes to inhabit. And it's a very empowering way to be. She holds the reins of power throughout the film eventually. And um, the relationship with Cyril is also quite interesting, how that triangle is set up from the very beginning. And everyone's got very clear roles. So I think the comedy really fits into that. Uh, and it plays a very significant part in how we should interpret the film. You know, kind of, it, it's constantly trying to send itself up 
and yeah. to tell you yeah. this is not well serious. josh you meant you called it a, a gothic romantic comedy and the film that i was thinking about whilst watching this was the handmaiden mm. i can see that yeah and i think and looking at that it kind of taking elements of the gothic and putting them into the film and having them as normal but taking other elements and reworking them and adapting them like this idea of this uh, kind of this house that we never see the end of that it's always we, we these rooms that just appear and these little secret messages that get left inside the clothing which is a mm -hmm. such a wonderful detail um and it's using it to actually deconstruct that power balance that we're used to seeing in this triangle between a man and a woman and a woman and I really wasn't sure from the beginning what the power balance was for quite a while because you're convinced it's Cyril who's pulling all the strings and as it goes along you think no it's him and as it goes along maybe it's Alma maybe it's everyone and you have so much fun going along with that ride just as I think you do with The Handmaiden as well which is constantly keeping you guessing as the the other great joy of the film is that it's also as well as all of these things, a gothic comedy, uh, a, a drama, a melodrama in that kind of Todd Haynes way and Max Ophuls. Um, it is also a great screwball comedy. The dialogue yes. is written entirely like, you know, the, the great uh, screwballs of the 1930s. Uh, bringing up baby is one that comes to mind. And it works with that same setup. It's two people who are completely bonkers and are intolerable to anyone else <laughs> who actually find each other in some bizarre way. Mm. So that... It works incredibly well in the setup. I was going to say, um, one of my favourite quotes, and perfectly appropriate since we're recording this in the morning, was, uh, I cannot begin my day with a confrontation, please. <laughs> <laughs> that is brilliant. I did, I did love all the breakfast scenes. Also, as someone who is utterly religious about breakfast, I completely agree. Do not upset me at breakfast, please. This film is almost as much about breakfast as it is clothes. Uh, but uh, <laughs> for, should we maybe discuss a bit about uh, Leslie Manville's Cyril before we kind of delve into where the plot goes? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So this is an, a now Oscar-nominated performance uh, for supporting actor from Leslie Manville, a thoroughly well-deserved one. Yeah, it's a role that, again, with some of the Hitchcock influence, at first kind of seems very much in the spirit of, well, I guess it's also the spirit of Daphne Maurier's novel as well, but um, Alfred Hitchcock's Rebecca, uh, with the uh, Mrs. Danvers? Mrs. Danvers. Mrs. Danvers, yes. I was going to say Miss Havisham, that's completely weird. <laughs> um, yeah, Mrs. Danvers' character is this kind of person you get with the package mm. that the lead character, Rebecca, finds with her marriage, um, kind of seemingly pulling the strings and manipulating everything um it initially seems like that she's the sister of daniel day lewis's uh Reynold, fantastically named uh, reynolds jeremiah woodcock um <laughs> which they, was a name that they came up with to give him a silly name when they hadn't decided on his name <laughs> and then it just stuck oh wow well. <laughs> the silly bit being jeremiah of course <laughs> yes that's one of the great last ones revealed uh, during the wedding ceremony but um, <laughs> but yes she she kind of her and reynolds kind of built this business up together and yeah she just pretty much comes with the package but one thing I found interesting is that she may initially seem like sort of an antagonist, I suppose, but various points, I think you can read that things she professes to like Reynolds, like, oh, I rather like Alma. It's, maybe she does actually mean it. Mm. I, I think it's not quite as uh, cut and dry as I maybe might have expected from the comparisons to Danvers I'd seen in some of the uh, critical reception. I don't know what you guys think about that. I, I think she does like her. I think there's a there's a point at which uh, the film turns and is where we're going to get into the scene that leads up to the evil asparagus being cooked <laughs> in butter, which is clearly a totally common thing to do. Um, in that moment, uh, that's the moment when Alma kind of starts to 
appear to be more powerful. She starts to make requests and says, this is what I want. But actually, it's a moment of real weakness, I think, for, for her as a character to have to say it out loud and to mm. have to architect a scene and a time where she can be alone with him. Except, how else are you going to do it? These people are around all the time, all the same stresses and the dressmakers and the people who come to the house to work. And the sister is there at all times, uh, at breakfast, at lunch, at dinner, at, at work. When they go to sleep, they sleep in separate rooms. Um, how are you going to get rid of this person? And yet, that's the moment when Cyril really gives her advice and says, look, he doesn't like surprises. Do not do this. Mm. This is a bad idea, girl. I want to keep you here. I want to keep you safe. And she goes, no, 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 I'm going to do this. And that's the moment when I thought, oh, God, everything's going to go pear-shaped now. That you're just gonna, he's just going to kill her. Mm. Um, and he doesn't, and then magical things happen. Uh, so I do think that Cyril is kind of overall in favor of Alma generally. She doesn't. She gets quite late at the point where she says, should I ask her to leave, which we see her do at the very beginning. Uh, so clearly she's in charge of getting the girlfriends to leave when they get a bit too much. But it, we only see one other woman in Reynolds' life uh, who is a person who clearly doesn't really get him and is there just begging for his attention and his love and that's not worked. So I think Cyril's trying to warn Alma in a way but Alma's going to have her way, absolutely. Um, what's also quite interesting is the historical accuracy of having a brother and sister team mm. lead a, um, a house, uh, a fashion house uh, this was a part of the extensive research that the team did for the film. They worked uh, apparently um, from a biography about Cristobal Balenciaga, who is one of the great designers, influenced Dior, influenced all of the great fashion houses of the 50s. And uh, there's a, there are clear references to the fact that it was always a male-female team. So she's also a woman in extreme power in terms of her business position and being the person who contacts the clients and deals with the clients while the crazy guy is upstairs designing the dress and then doing the crazy bit that he does. So she's a fascinating character and a great performance. She's so subtle. She doesn't have as many lines as anyone else, but her face is a work of wonder. I just was so enthralled by watching her. Mm. Uh, I think Anderson knows that because there are a few shots in the film that are just very much close-ups of her looking directly into camera as well quite early on in the film yeah and i think in this he really he's really valuing people's faces even when they're not saying a thing just resting the camera and leaving it on them a bit longer than we might expect there were a couple of moments of that where i was half expecting her eyes to change like amy adams and the master <laughs> <laughs> um yeah no it's a terrific performance um and again when she does very occasionally you know go into a, not even a speech but just a couple of small quips it's like a bulldozer even goes through her uh, her see you next Tuesday of her brother trying to act up. Yes, um, yeah, there is a particular insult that when when he is trying to kind of step over the line, she completely shuts him down with a breakfast time insult. And at that moment, you realise he's really at the bottom of this food chain. That, yeah. is, that is definitely going to be Manville's Oscar clip. Yeah. <laughs> definitely. A point that I was not expecting the film to go into and one that... I'm sure Arena and I can agree on as the anti-mushroom brigade of this podcast is uh, I the... am also anti-mushroom. Really? Yes. I'm not... Uh, yes. I'll begrudgingly have them. Oh, We're I, taking I, over. Yes. I'm yeah. very allergic to mushrooms so now you know how to kill me. Excellent. Well, I'm, I'm keep me. I'm hoping this is kind of... This is spreading out because we had the beguiled as well and now we've got this and I'm hoping lots of 
American auteurs gradually telling each other, just just don't do mushrooms, all right? Just have enough. And gradually that's going to start spreading and spreading and like Michael Bay is going to do it and then it's going to be in Marvel films and then no one's going to have to eat mushrooms anymore. Mushroom man. Yeah. <laughs> so were we expecting poison mushrooms in this film? I was only for the reason that I, uh, someone blatantly spoiled it on Twitter the day before <gasps> I saw the film. However, so I was under the, the... The vague hint I got was that maybe Reynolds gets poisoned not my mushrooms but gets poisoned right at the end of the film and dies or something like that that was so i had that in in the back of my mind going into the film i'm very pleased that's not quite where it was it was a lot weirder than i expected yeah this is a moment in which alma grates some poisonous mushrooms into reynolds beloved lapsang tea um kind of forcing him to bed and i think there's there's this idea of men wanting constantly to go to work that you can't be ill that you have to you have to be at work all the time and you have to provide and he goes down to check on this wedding dress that he's been making and this the kind of dizzying camera just follows him around and you kind of get into his headspace it's really woozy and he you can really feel his discomfort in the way that it's been shot and it's he's just surrounded by these women that are dressed the same and there's this dress in the middle and it's this kind of horrible nightmare for him that he's he's out of control of the situation and collapses and tears and stains the dress that he's been working on. And for him, this is the worst situation possible, that he is told to be sent to bed, that he cannot work. And he this is, is all Helm was doing. He is truly rendered powerless uh, by a woman. And, I mean, I at one point, when they, they picked the mushrooms the first time, I saw... I wonder what they're doing with these mushrooms. <laughs> and then, you know, how the idea comes back to her. And then, obviously, it comes back this one time when she puts the mushrooms in the in the tea. But eventually, it comes up again at the end as essentially the thing that seals a deal between them, um, which is a way of, you know, her making her desire very explicit. She says, I want you powerless, flat out in a bed, and you cannot do anything without my care. And that, I, I mean, short of Fifty Shades of Grey, I don't think an S&M contract has mm. ever been made more explicit. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's true. Yeah, that's a really good call. Um, poison, of course, traditionally is a woman's uh, weapon, uh, as uh, famously poised by Sherlock Holmes. Um, but it, it's always this kind of um, complicated way for women to get their revenge from Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs to Game of Thrones and, of course, Hitchcock. Uh, notorious uh, has the the mother and husband poisoning the wife. Um, suspicion is the great one about the husband poisoning the wife, and 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 here it's fantastic to see poison going back to women and just <laughs> this great weapon of power. Yeah, and he has a great romantic line at almost closing the film when he says, "Is it kiss me, my darling, <laughs> before I'm ill?" <laughs> and then cut to. Him sat on a stool next to the toilet. Yeah, with <laughs> vom- bowlers yeah. On his I think head. I think it would be better if you left now, <laughs> <laughs> and then come back. Yeah. I wonder how long he's gonna survive. Yeah, like surely at one point he might long, just he's... it might just be too much. Yeah, how long? Like I wonder whether the the time frame between poisonings is gradually just going to get shorter and shorter. Yeah, that maybe this time it was a few months, and then she might just get a bit annoyed and. Just give him a weekend eventually. I, I did not realise by the point of that closing scene how much, whether he knew or not, that he was being poisoned. And then by the end, it's completely sealed. That's that's how they're going to do it. That's mm-hmm. how it's going to operate. Occasionally, he just needs to be told, 
to shut up and go away somewhere. And that is fantastic. Mm-hmm. The way to deal with toxic masculinity is with poison. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you just uh, make it, you know, completely harmless by taking away its power. Mm. So something that goes throughout the film and maybe a bit differently to uh, Inherent Vice is Johnny Greenwood's music. Now in Inherent Vice, that's kind of, it's dipped in because that film has very much got its own soundtrack as well as its score. Uh, this is completely reliant on Johnny Greenwood's score, which which feels like such a big presence. Um, it's very, it's great grand, it's intoxicating. Uh, Josh, you and I were both listening to it on the way here. Yes. It's quite easy to listen to, yeah. uh, which maybe is quite a bit different to something like the There Will Be Blood score. Yeah, uh, I also think it does share lineage with that, and that's, it, it makes that it's both a very lush kind of fitting what's more the topical focus of this film but it's also still very eerie throughout uh which kind of is perfectly appropriate for kind of the sealed universe that is this household mm. <laughs> in a way but yeah i think that's fantastic but yeah listening on its own as well but brilliant in the film itself so. yeah and the, the first working track from it was actually a leftover from inherent vice all oh, right and uh, so that a little bit of that inherent vice score w- eventually became the phantom thread score that we know now uh and Something that I was really surprised about is that the Academy Award nominations came out and Johnny Greenwood was nominated. And this is the first time that he has been. And you think of how acclaimed the music for There Will Be Blood and The Master in Herod Vice has been, that this is the first time that he's been nominated, which is phenomenal. Yeah, if I recall correctly, There Will Be Blood might have been disqualified for once some stupid technical reason, like he possibly reused a bit of his score from Body Song uh, way back. Right, okay. um, something... They seem to be very picky regarding whether they bother with that because I f- think the same thing was le- um, thrown at um, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross for the social net- network, yet they still won Oscar. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's quite romantic the music and the track Alma, the track when she's first introduced, which comes a bit later in the soundtrack when you're listening to it. The sound really changes, and when she's not there, you can really feel it in the music like, in quite an obvious way. It almost goes. Giacchino lost in terms of how kind of rapturous <laughs> it is for her and like, that he is so in love with the, her presence on screen and you totally get swept back into this world and I think that shows you just how much a part of the film this music is which I think compared to something like Inherent Vice is not so integral. It's it's really nice how the music goes along with the lighting as well. There's um the the lighting and the colours in the film change when Alma is introduced and they change at that point when he's trying the different colours on her and says, no, this one's too serious. Up until the moment, it's been very blue, it's been very cool. Uh, there's a lot of winter light. It's definitely a very wintry film mm. for me in terms of lighting. Uh, although it's quite bright, but in that kind of cold, you mm. know, harsh white and blue lighting. And then when she's finally introduced in the picture and it selects this kind of warm red colour, then completely different hues come in and the music does go along with that as well, I think. There's this beautiful combination. One thing just to quickly bring up there, because I'm not sure if we did, this is uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's first film where he's acted as cinematographer. Yeah, yeah as well, well, this is this is something that I thought was quite interesting, because there's, there's no credit for cinematography on the film. And he said that he, he shot it himself, but wouldn't call himself the cinematographer mm. or director of photography, um, because he effectively placed the camera yeah. and then but he doesn't know how to work it yeah. and so he's just say he just says just said that this is a collaborative effort and i think what's different about this to me is this reads as being really agile that i don't think i've really seen in a film of his before like magnolia for instance is so composed all of that mm. dollying all, all the time it's 
it's amazing to look at and it's got such a lovely flow to it but it's very composed and i imagine he took a lot of time and care to get the look he wanted on this but it doesn't feel like that it feels like you're just like lovingly tossed into it and you're just dreaming with it yeah, it's also maybe from the 70, 70 mil film that he used, but there's there's this kind of rarefied way of lighting which reminded me of Vermeer. Uh, the, the, the visual comparison for me was entirely with Vermeer. There's one source of light and then suddenly the key uh, you know, aspects of the picture are lit by that one light. And this happens time and time again, which is extraordinary. I bet he worked with a lot of natural light as well because the, the whole film was shot in this house in Fitzrovia, in, no, sorry, Fitzroy Square, which has all of the kind of um, embassy buildings in it. And uh, there's a lot of beautiful light in there, lots of space. And uh, Let's go yeah. afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. For a cup of lapsang. <laughs> right, so that that's that's it in our Phantom Thread podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, if you need something else to watch, because there will there are other films, but frankly, what what are you, you going to watch really? What are you talking Eden. about? Yeah, um, yeah. Let's just go back and watch Eden again. Um, uh, if you haven't seen it yet, uh, God's Own Country is now on Curzon Home Cinema. So if you want to check that out, uh, it's it played in cinemas for months and months last year. It's a hit at the UK box office. It's got Biffers. It's got BAFTA nominations. It was you, in the Curzon Top 10. Yeah, you've got to check it out. You really do. Uh, I was lucky enough to speak to Alex Karyanu and Francis Lee all about it on an old episode of the show. So go back and listen to that if you want to. But what a double bill you could do this week. Phantom Thread in the cinema and God's Own Country at Home wonderful stuff uh, if you've got any thoughts on Phantom Thread do let us know by emailing podcast at curzon.com and we will be reading them out on next week's show and if you haven't already do review us so head to iTunes or SoundCloud uh, subscribe if you haven't already leave a review comment uh, give us that rating out of five stars that would be wonderful uh, until next time though it is goodbye from Josh goodbye goodbye from Marana. goodbye and it's goodbye from me goodbye